All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast. Welcome to it. How's it going? Everybody okay? Are you okay? Are you, maybe you're not okay. You're probably not. Fuck, I'm sorry. I'm not great. Uh, I'm, I'm nervous and scared and uh, lonely and, and crazy and uh, aggravated and full of sorrow a lot of the time. But I have my moments. How about you? How's, every, how's everything with the kid? The kid okay? Is the other kid all right? How's that third kid doing? Are they going crazy? Are they ready to get out of the house? How about you? Are you all right? Don't hurt yourself. Don't hurt anybody. How's the cooking coming along? Is that going pretty well? Did you get that thing fixed? I think you should go to the doctor. I know it's scary, but you should go if you got to go. It's pretty safe at a doctor's office, I believe. Yeah, I mean, look, man, if you're not happy and it seems irreconcilable, you got to do what you got to do. It's a bad time to do it, really, but but if you got to do it, you got to do it. This is the time you know these kind of things. I'm so happy you renewed your vows. Where'd you do it? At home? Online? Who did it? Who led the ceremony? Does that cover it? How are you guys? Everybody all right? Guys, gals, those who identify differently. Today on the show, I talked to Andrew Bird. He's a, he's a musician, a singer, a songwriter. He's kind of a musical renaissance man, a savant of sorts. He has 16 solo albums out, plus he's worked with the uh, Squirrel Nut Zippers, the Handsome Family, and his own group, Andrew Bird's Bowl of Fire. Um, he does scores for film and television, like Baskets and, and Lynn Shelton's uh, Outside In, her, her movie before the movie I was in. His new album is called uh, Hark. And I got to be honest with you, I did not know a lot about him. I didn't know his music. I certainly didn't know he'd been around this long. I kind of knew the Squirrel Nut Zippers. I just was not, I didn't know him. But the way I came to him was I knew that Lynn, um, the woman I was in love with and seeing when she passed away in May, who was living here at the house, she loved Andrew Bird. She loved him. And she was so thrilled that he scored her film, Outside In, with Jay Duplass and Edie Falco, which is a great movie. But I just knew she had this reverence for this guy. And and I'd listened to a little bit of it, but I never got sunk in. I never, like, really dug in. And oddly, because I, I did not know how close he and Lynn were, um, it, it, it sort of the, the, the sad, this intro starts in a sad way, because when when you were there when somebody passes away it's sort of on you to do that first wave of informing people you know you can um delegate that to family members and stuff you know which you do but you you do want to reach out to a few people to begin spreading the word that that someone they loved or knew or has uh, has passed away and you know i put together an email and sent it, and, and, and I had access at that time to uh, some of her her email lists or to her, to her friends, and um, and I sent out this email, and he was one of the people that received that initial dispatch the day, uh, I guess, the the morning after um, she passed away. And I, I talked to him a bit about it. He didn't, they didn't know each other that well. But she was so thrilled that he agreed to do her, um, 
uh, her movie. And since then, I, I've sort of dug in a bit because I got the opportunity to talk to him. And I wanted to talk to him about that, obviously. But I wanted to talk to him about you know, a lot of stuff I didn't even know about. And, and as I got into it, I realized, like, this guy's a fucking wizard uh, and, and a truly gifted person. And I had no idea uh, about him until, you know, a month or weeks before I talked to him. And it was kind of a thrill to talk to him because I was told a- after the fact, uh, Flanagan... Uh, from Largo fame, he uh, he was like, you, you know, did he talk? <laughs> Flanagan will do that to me sometimes because he knows all the musicians because they all come through there where they used to when we could do that. And uh, and I didn't realize he was one of those people that might be difficult, but he he, he talked. So uh, so I, I did. I was in. I was able to engage Andrew Bird in a nice. Uh, broad discussion about things, himself, music, stuff, Lynn. So uh, that's who's on the show today. I was feeling very good for maybe a week or two. Like I felt like I was coming through something. I felt like I was integrating whatever's been happening over the last, um, you know, eight, seven, eight months since lockdown, since uh, Lynn's death, you know, and I, I thought that the spiritual and uh, psychological and emotional abacus that uh, you know the beads were lining up things were leveling off the equations were coming out okay i was coming out whole i thought that was happening and i'm sure it was but you always hear about the waves you know the waves of grief and i don't know what it was but the other night i was driving out to set for a night shoot and it was just me in the car you know, listening to music and driving out to the set. And I just was overwhelmed with this sadness. And and I guess, I don't remember who I was talking to, is that, you know, the sort of difference between sadness and sorrow and the, the manifestations of grief are what they are. You know, it comes in waves. And obviously, I'm far away from that day when I sent Andrew Bird that email and the trauma of that and the shock of that. And I know loss is part of everyone's life after a certain point, but you know how that sorrow informs you and your being from that point on, or how you see life from that point on, or how you see loss, all of it, I, it defines, redefines you somehow. It makes you more whole in a way, that the loss actually makes you more whole as a person for having experienced it. I don't know if that makes sense. But then when you get right down to it, you, you just, I just miss her. And uh, I miss everything about her. And when your brain gets into that place, you know, you just got to let it happen. I don't need to push those memories aside. All of it, you know. And I just let the sadness happen. It's okay. And I use it. I'll, 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 I'll use it. I can live in it when I want to, but there's no reason to turn it off. There's no reason to turn it off. Those are the feelings. That is what life is. Joy, sorrow, fear. So I got to uh, act the other day with Stephen Root and Allison Janney, powerhouses 
and Andrea Riceboro. I was right there in this like little triangle. It's me, Andrea, and Allison Janney in this one very intense scene. And Allison was full tilt, man. And Andrea was full tilt. And I was like, oh my God. I was like hanging on for dear life in the acting zone. But it's pretty great. It's pretty great. Scary day. A lot of extras. But everyone was tested. And I guess we'll see. But it, it is, uh, I, I'm, I'm excited to see this fucking movie. I, I don't, I think I'm doing good work. I think I am. I'm definitely not being self-conscious. I'll tell you that right now. So I was going to get Buster a cat because I was thinking about getting a kitten. And um, I don't know. I don't know if I really want to deal with a kitten because I think me and Buster, because it was me and the old cats and Buster for so long, and he was sort of on the outside. We're still sort of bonding. And he's sort of com- becoming a different cat. And we're getting along in a different way. And I know this sounds ridiculous, but the relationship is deepening. And the only reason I would get a kitten that I've decided I would name Mingus is for Buster. But I don't even know if Buster would get that kitten and just beat the shit out of it all day long. So now do I want to deal for months with a frightened kitten until it gets big enough to hold its own with the fucking bruiser in there? Or do I just want to ride it out for a while and, and keep getting the... No Buster better and letting him relax. I don't know. These aren't these are the big problems, folks. Not getting COVID and deciding whether or not Buster needs a friend. Luxury fucking problems, people. So uh, as I said before, Andrew Bird uh, has a lot of stuff. Done a lot of stuff. But he's uh, he's actually has a holiday album out, uh, and it's a holiday album in a very Andrew Bird kind of way. It's called Hark. You can get it at andrewbird.net and digital media platforms. And uh, this is me talking to um, Andrew Bird. Nice to meet you, Andrew. Good to meet you, Mark. Uh, Sorry we couldn't do this in person. I was looking forward to that. I know. Did you freak out or did I freak out? Who freaked out? What happened? I think I, I freaked out. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I was just yeah. feeling, feeling the doom. I was feeling it, you know, closing in from all sides. Um, I d- I feel that uh, I feel that every day. I, yeah. But oddly, I felt it before COVID. So you know, I was ahead of the curve on that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You just felt like uh, you didn't want to go out anywhere. I understood it. Uh, yeah. I just thought like, oh, if we're both in the same room together. And one yeah. of us has it. The chances are the other one would walk out with it too. That's right. Well, I I, uh, I, I just got tested today. I'm getting. I'm going to be getting tested every other day now because oh, I'm going to do good. a job. Do you right. get tested? How crazy are you about it? I mean, when I was doing Fargo, I was getting tested every two days. Now I'm like once a week or once every two weeks. That's right. You were in the last season of Fargo. Mm-hmm. I haven't been on a set yet. We were, it was one of the first ones because it got shut down in March and then we came back in September. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And it was one of the first ones to go back. And yeah, there were like 500 people. Oh my God. Trying to f- finish, like on staff, like trying to finish the show because they're doing multiple episodes at the same time. And, and, uh, and then health and safety people. And Did you feel safe? I mean,. Yeah, you know, it took. It was the first one, so you know, a lot of the, a lot of the actors were pulling their masks down, trying not to mess up their makeup. Right, and <laughs> people were improvising. Like within hours, people figured out to put the face shield upside down. So oh, right, like this. Yeah, 
So and, that way it can uh, just come, the COVID can just come in over the top. It seems yeah. like a, <laughs> I don't know. I'm about to do a small movie uh, and they've convinced me that, uh, that being on their set is safer than me going to the supermarket. Uh, you know, honestly, I feel comfortable hanging around with people that are on, that are being tested every day on set. Like yeah. it seems safer than other people. Sure. Yeah. I, and um, when I go out, man, I put an N95 on plastic shield. I'm fucking ready. Has yeah. I'm full on PPE, but I go out, I'd go crazy if I didn't go shopping shit. I know we kind of uh, moved out into the, into the country to assume crash position just before the election. So we were, We've been out in Ojai, and I came in for this. Of course, I didn't need to because <laughs> we're doing it this way. So we've just been out uh, in the middle of nowhere. Um, Wait, oh, so you're not, so you mean in the middle of nowhere, not Ojai, somewhere other than Ojai? Well, just, just a remote part of Ojai. So, oh, so where are you now? Very, I'm in L.A. I just came in to do, I've got to finish this uh, soundtrack oh. uh, and, and do this and Oh, okay. So this is your L.A., uh, that's your L.A. house. Yeah, this is my living room. That's nice. I Yeah, I. it was weird because, you know, I haven't, I, I don't, I didn't really know your stuff before uh, Lynn turned me on to you. And when Lynn died, you know, I didn't, you know, I didn't know how close you guys were, you know, and I was going through, because you got one of those emails, you know, like yeah. when I, when I sent out that first round of contacts. When it yeah. happened, because I didn't know how close you guys were, but I knew that, you know, she talked to you and, and that she had your email. So I just picked all these people that either I knew that were close to her or I might have been close to her. So so I don't know how that made you feel to get that first email. I don't know how close you were to her. But well, uh, I didn't know how close you were to her <laughs> until until this happened. I mean, I remember having lunch with her in Seattle. Yeah. And she was talking about working with you a lot. Right. Um, and then I heard she was moving to L.A., but I didn't really put it all together. Right. Until Well, yeah, we um, hadn't been that public for, we weren't that public for that long. We weren't really together in the world publicly for that long. I mean, I did not spend that many uh, hours of, of my life with Lynn, but she made yeah. a huge impression on me. And both of, I just watched Sort of Truth yesterday. Sort of Trust, yeah. Um, sort of Trust. Yeah. Um, and uh, that was that was intense seeing her. And, I know, and you, and then seeing, and then you did the score to that, and then now we've both done Lynn Shelton scores. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, yours was I'm sure a lot more engaged in the process of actual scoring. Yeah, we just used a bunch of bits and pieces of my music that I I put at the end of the podcast. I just okay. I kind of do these little guitar interludes that uh, uh, of all different kinds, and she thought it fit the tone of the piece. Well, it did. Um, yeah. But we when we did uh, outside in, she sat next to me. For every note that I played, she because she's such a fan. Well, it was you'd think you usually wouldn't, as in scoring a movie, want the director to be sitting next to you for every note you play. But I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I thought it was great because she would um, she would make immediate comment, you know, uh, say yay or nay or like that's that's good or you know. Yeah, it was, we were done in three days. She loves musicians, you know. Yeah. Well, she and she's so happy that you did it. You did it in three days, something like that, like three intense days in my studio. It's a great score. It's a great little movie. That movie. It is. It's real sweet. 
interesting movie. Yeah. But what do you, what is the process of of scoring? I don't know if I've ever talked to anybody about it. Like you know, like like because I know how I approach an interview. Like I like talking to you. I you know I I have to make certain assumptions by by listening to your music or, or looking at your face or thinking about <laughs> the words you say, and then I kind of build a person in my head. Uh, that isn't you, but it's based on my idea of you. And then well, I kind of chip away at that, uh, you know, when I meet somebody. So I imagine that scoring something, you have to, there's a similar process where you have to take in the tone and kind of assess what you think is going on and feel it, right? Yeah, but uh, ultimately it's not your child, you know, it's, and that's, that's my tricky relationship with scoring is like, uh-huh. I'm used to total autonomy Right. Uh, creatively, I'm used to waiting for things to um, just appear out of nowhere. And uh, isn't that weird how that happens? Yeah. <laughs> the <laughs> things appearing out of nowhere. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And they just kind of accumulate, and and the one the ideas that are most that keep coming back because of some sort of sensory trigger. You know, like every time I, for a while, every time I'd get into a taxi in New York City. Uh-huh. I would hear the same melody. It's like the, that terrible air freshener would trigger the same melody. Really? And, and I just like, well, this keeps coming back. I got I to gotta write some lyrics for this. But with a score, score you're just like, um, you're like the, you know, much different than the costume designer or, or the, you know what I mean? You're, that, you're I guess so. I, well, I, I guess on, in terms of supporting the collaborative effort, but it's a very different job than costume design. Yeah, of I, I get what you're saying in terms of the job uh, and your place in the uh, collaborative environment. But still, you, what do you do? Do you have to watch the whole movie and and see how it makes you feel, or are there practical elements like like suspense building? I mean, was there? Did you have to read a book on it? No, um, <laughs> no, no, no. I I wanted to do it really badly when I was in um, college because I was. Uh, studying music and I could I played all these different I was just so restless and going from one style to the next and I thought I could this, I'd be good at and I was kind of into the 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 cinematic dramatization of what you see around you, you right know? and I thought this is a perfect profession for me and then instead I I got a conversion van and started going around the country playing dive bars and yeah. that became more romantic than scoring movies uh was your old timey when you were doing the old timey music? Uh, that yeah, that was in the the Bowl of Fire days. Um, I went through multiple Dodge conversion vans, um, yeah, and just hit the pavement for years. And it was that was a big adventure, you know. That was that kind of took all the, and then creating an album, I thought in terms of a movie as well, or a novel, or something like right. Creating an arc and a thread through things. You did that with your own work. Yeah. Yeah, trying to find, uh, well, when you're writing, it's just you accumulate 12 songs over, say, two years, and, and these characters keep popping up, or these ideas keep... Interesting, right. You know, and then you tr- seek through the artwork or through uh, more consciously to, to tie it all together, like a, like a novel or, right, or a right. film. Right, right, yeah. So that became the film for me. So, but when you approach a movie, you, do, you, do you sit down and watch it? I, I watch it. Uh, with no sound, no music. With, mm, that's the tricky thing. A lot of times the directors want to give you temp music. 
which oh. is the bane of most composers' existence. Like, like songs or th- little things that somebody noodled on a piano? or No, it's usually uh, taken from other people's scores or other songs by oh. artists. Oh. And then you're, you're like, well, if I don't listen to this, I won't know what the director wants. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know that, that if you just kind of, they get attached to these temp, temp scores and I'm like yeah. to the point where you're like you just why did you hire Andrew Bird to do your score if you want right this if this is what you want if you if you want Vangelis why did you hire me <laughs> a lot of times it's someone else kind of doing you my my thing you know and so it's this weird loop <laughs> yeah and it, it can drive you it just you know you you develop a what I call a healthy bad attitude about about your work but do you see that so you see though like not unlike people who do commercial work you see the soundtrack uh, area of your 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 work to be like uh just sort of a a job that makes exercising, you exercising yeah e- exercising a, a an ability i have or a certain craft that you're I not have. looking to be randy newman nope um no i mean i would i'd find what he does if someone wanted me to do the Randy Newman thing, I'd find that way more engaging than just doing an instrumental score. Like having to write a song for a movie, yeah. that's interesting. And I like, I like the challenge of having to write lyrics that somehow fit with the film but don't comment on it too much. Right. You know, that, that would uh, challenge me a lot. But just simply doing the, the instrumental music is just is not using what I have enough. Well, what about the, what about the whistling gig? That seemed like a pretty good gig. That, the whistling, uh, whistling Caruso. Like I didn't know, yeah. like I was listening to all your records and I, my friend Kit, she's like, uh, she says, Oh, he's whistling. He's the, he did the whistling thing in the Muppet movie. I'm like, what? Yeah. The whistling Caruso. And then she showed it to me and she was like, I thought that was on a keyboard, but that's him. Yeah. I mean, it was, uh, manipulated a little bit to be extra virtuosic, but not very much. I mean, that was fun. I enjoyed that because I was talking to the director, James Bobin, and he was, he's trying to nail the exact right comedic, um, tone, which was, uh, a self-serious of the whistling self-serious, like overly virtuosic. Um, (laughs) And he sent me like a YouTube clip of like a guy in, tails you know tucks like in front of an orchestra uh-huh. poised you know doing yeah. this sort of classical mozart whistling and completely serious but yet right. doing this thing that people do when they're doing the dishes why do you think of you though how'd you get known as the whistling guy i do it constantly i've been doing it constantly since i was six years old like if i'm not sleeping, you were doing it before we started before we started what you were just walking around your house whistling oh yeah yeah <laughs> Uh, exactly. It's the most, uh, casual, like unconscious way of making music. And therefore that's sometimes, that's almost always where the good stuff comes from. From you whistling? Yeah. Cause it's not, I'm not holding an instrument. There's no right, physical, right. physical memory. I'm not on office hours. I'm not like now I'm composing. Right. You know? Right. And that's when you write the good stuff. Huh. And, uh, but how did they know to ask you to whistle? Do you do it on a lot of the records? I, maybe I didn't listen to the later records. Is, do you, is there records where it's all whistling? I started doing it on swimming on my third, fourth album. It didn't occur to me to do something so easy. On the last album. Bowl of Fire record? The last Bowl of Fire swimming hour. 
I, yeah. I did it for the first time because my hands were busy. You know, it was just to carry the melody. But that that sort of fit the style. There there was that sort of weird crossover. It was almost there's some kind of like old timey style that you were playing with. It seems, and it seems like mm -hmm. some of that kind of uh, uh, that era of Americana music would have had some yodels and whistles and stuff. Sure. But I, I think, you know, it, usually it's, it would be like, okay, this is where the, the violin's going to play something. Right. Play the lead melody. And then sometimes the violin has too much baggage sometimes. It's like, it can be centuries. romantic. <laughs> centuries. Yeah, centuries of, <laughs> of, of associations, yeah. And the whistle just kind of uh, is, is a placeholder. And then I'm like, well, that's... That cuts right through, and it's unique, uniquely human too. Like you, it's so identifi it it's so identifiably human. Most people can can kind of eke out a whistle, you know. It, and it, yeah, yeah. I mean, it does reveal whether you got a tin ear right away. Um, What's that mean? Out of tune. Out of tune. Yeah, that like it has. There's since there's no frets or keys, you know. It, yeah, it, you can. I can hear someone whistling. I'm like, oh, they have no sense of pitch whatsoever. <laughs> I'm gonna go Whereas tell him. I'm gonna go tell yeah. that guy at the bus stop. Hey, pal, you're ruining that song. <laughs> but then I, when I went solo after Bowl of Fire, I also was trying to hold the attention of an audience uh, in a crowded bar. Mm. Um, I was out there just traveling around by myself, setting up my gear, and and I would always start the set by like filling my lungs and holding a note until people stopped talking. And oh. it would grab their attention, like, uh -huh. whereas, you know, just another band setting up out of a four-band night is just not going to get right. people to stop talking. Right. So um, you just whistle until they shut up? Exactly. Do you know how to do that loud whistle with your fingers? Mm-mm. Good. I've only got one. one there's many techniques, and I've only got one, and mine's just kind of a full operatic whistle, you know. So that was the challenge of doing the whistle in Caruso was to make itself important to accentuate the funny. Exactly. And I did a lot of back and forth with him. And I was happy to because I totally understood what he was. I appreciated what he was trying to do. It must have been fun. I was, I was, I was, yeah, I was like really psyched to, to try it again. You know, whereas usually <laughs> when a director wants you to do it over again, you're like, oh, Jesus. But I was like, no, we got to get, you know, I was... Um, so they just reached out to you, not because you were known for whistling, but because you were... Uh, no, for I think they heard it on the album oh, okay. and knew that I, I did it. Um, I was working on an album at the time. It, I think it was Break It Yourself. It was, you know, maybe eight, eight or nine years ago. So we actually, we actually met, um, sort of met at the Bell House. Remember, like, Eugene Merman was doing... Yeah, yeah, man. Was, were we on the same show with Eugene? We were on the same. I played before you, with my friend Tift. Was I was in, was I an asshole? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What did I do? You came on. Okay, this is like the first show I was doing with my friend uh, Tift. I'm so uh, glad we're, we're, we're doing this kind of more out more. In the open. We're going back to doing like country old timey stuff. Was it a woman, and Tiff? Tiff Merritt. Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. And it's so we're doing these harmonies, and it was it was yeah it was. You were just, uh, you came on stage after we went off stage and you said, oh, Jesus, got to follow this like depressing Appalachian bullshit or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, well, it, I'm sure oh. it, it, it was just, it has nothing personal. Oh, it was endearing. But, 
but yeah, but it was it was completely me trying to do my version of whistling to get them to change their attention. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. But where do, how did because you're kind of a wizard with the instruments. I mean, did that is that something that revealed itself early on? Like like are you a prodigy? Um, I was brought up in an atmosphere of prodigies in like I grew up in Chicago on the North Shore and they were I was stu- I studied violin from an early age and they were you know they groom prodigies from age 4. Well, what what does that mean? Wait, but your your parents were musical people? No, not at all. Uh my my mom's an artist and she wanted her kids to play classical music and uh, She's a painter? She's a print artist, yeah. Painter okay. and print artist. And uh-huh. uh, she, all of us, my siblings play, but it, it stuck with me more than the others. And How many are there? Um, there's four of us total. Huh. So I, I played from age four, um, and she took me twice a week. And, and there were these, like, teachers that would kind of look for the next prodigy and right. classical, you know... And they would take a four-year-old, and by the time they were six, they'd be or seven, be playing Tchaikovsky. Oh my God! Violin concerto. And One of those like, freaks. That, that's the thing. Yeah, they they would have a nervous breakdown by the time they're ten. And right. But, um, so this was like an international search. These guys would come poking around, looking for the wizards. There's probably a similar scene in in Manhattan or Boston right. of of like, I don't know. They they were usually a couple that would take. There was a couple that would take over the kid's life and and they wanted to do that with me and my mom said no that's like too too intense <laughs> thank god like, yeah no and <laughs> so it was all kind of um it was all fun you know it was i didn't hate it and i can't say i begged to be taken to violin lessons either it was just kind of a thing i did but you had a knack for it i was reasonably good at i was i was not a model student but i had a good tone and uh-huh. they kept saying oh you're very musical right whereas these prodigies are very technical mm. and to a six or seven year old that's those are abstract words I, I didn't know what that meant like musical versus um virtuosic or what, do, what, do, what, what do you make of that though man i mean like like when you because i these kids that can do this stuff where the hell does that come from I mean, these four-year-olds that just kind of a knack for it. Like, it's like, what is it? Just their brains wired a certain way? They no, just... no. I think I think you take any four-year-old, almost any four-year-old, and you can turn them into a, a prodigy. It's it's like a circus sideshow. It's like their universe is so small that uh-huh. if you fill it all with one thing, they'll master it. And then they put them up there in front of an orchestra, and they're like, "Look, it's magic." Right. It's the and, one and thing the kid can do, and it's all he'll ever do. He'll never live up to I, this. Pretty much. Pretty much. I mean, I, I got so into violin at certain points in my life that I became boring in other ways. It's huh. kind of like a, a jock or like an athlete. Right. Can, you know, ha- in order to be like a gold medalist, you become a little bit atroph- very atrophied in other ways. Right. Well, I mean, but uh, I mean, un- unfortunately for a jock, those other ways are what they're living for. Like, you know, when you get yeah. atrophy, <laughs> you know, like uh, if you're an, uh, a violin jock, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how many cheerleaders are going to be hanging around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, there's yeah, I see. There's a point. few. There's a few. I'm sure. <laughs> but do you have kids? Yeah, I have. I have one nine-year-old boy. Is he musical? He is, but uh, he, we don't push him. He plays guitar. Ah. And he's really into Bowie, Lou Reed, and John Cale. Wow! How'd that happen? You know, you people are gonna think that like I've I've led him there, and, and who are we kidding? He lives in our house, so he's gonna hear what right <laughs> what we listen to. But it's going the other way around, where he influences influences me, huh? Because he wants to play DJ around the house, and I don't tend to play music very much uh-huh. like, on the stereo, and he's playing it nonstop. So he was. When the pandemic hit, he was playing John Cale nonstop. The old stuff. The old uh, Paris nineteen nineteen and uh-huh. and then a lot of and Transformer, Lou Reed's uh-huh. Transformer, and you know and Pale Blue Eyes, you know like oh uh, yeah yeah he he would put these playlists together that were just the best of the best of that stuff, and it started influencing me. It no still kidding. is. That's great. So it's going the other way. It's funny. Your mother is your dad a musician or no? No. Not in the arts. Uh, no, he's a he's a numbers guy. Numbers guy. So you, your mom gets you off of the prodigy track, but you're good at the violin. But you're playing classical mostly before you go to college, or yeah, uh, I didn't know really at first how to uh, find anything else. I mean, I was I went through high school right hanging hanging with the the goth art damaged kids you know right you know they're they're playing a bunch of 4ad stuff and this mortal coil and all this stuff in the in in the car you know yeah and i i i didn't care for that stuff and i was playing dvorak violin concerto and that was my punk rock goth music that was was your goth the real stuff uh, yeah mozart (laughs) i mean i would like listen to mozart's requiem and like light candles in my bedroom and wow yeah that was the same thing as listening to uh the cure or whatever you know but but yeah i get it and it's like it's so interesting because that music is so much more sophisticated and elaborate and and rich like you know it's 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 so surprising to me that it's always been this kind of niche thing because it's so hard for most people to appreciate but it's like much more interesting music than almost anything else really i don't know anything about it but i know that yeah it is and it isn't you know it's like i listen to mozart now and i find it kind of sim- simple oh yeah <laughs> simplistic because you understand the structure or i don't know i i just i just like rougher music these right. days oh, but, okay yeah yeah, um, yeah yeah but when you're a teenager that it was it was hyper dramatic and um, well, what was the first kind of contemporary hole that you fell into that changed the way you looked at violin? Uh, kind of, some things happened simultaneously, but like early jazz, mm. you know, I was 18, 17, 18, and I, uh, I discovered Stefan Capelli, who played with Django Reinhardt. Right. And uh, I got into that hot, hot club jazz stuff. Right. I was also into like different folk music. Irish music was like I'd be playing in orchestras during the week for uh, school. I was at you know music school at Northwestern, right. and then on Sundays I'd go play sessions and 
drink Guinness and sit in a circle and people would share tunes. Right. And uh, Like uh, Gaelic folk stuff? Yeah, which is the same thing as old-timey. It's just the... European version of old timey. It's got a little different, uh, a little different, a little different rhythm, right? Yeah, but it was, you know, in classical music, it's all these long phrases. Mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes you play like fast rhythmic stuff, but it's not syncopated, right? And in Irish music, you have to be your own d- drummer and with your bow and play oh. the backbeat. Oh, really? You know, same thing with old time, because it's it's dance music basically. That's the function of it yeah i i had to kind of rewire my brain to figure out how to you know be my own drummer and play my own backbeat and then i played in a i joined a a rock band when i was 19 called charlie nobody in college and we they they were like a ska punk band when i joined so they were and then i brought this kind of irish element to it and Uh uh-huh um how'd that work out uh, <laughs> you know, it, it was, it's one of those college bands that was kind of kitchen sink. Uh, you don't know what not to do. I like the idea of it. This is a hybrid ska and uh, river dance. Yeah. <laughs> the covers we do were, uh, <laughs> we did Come On Eileen. Sure. And Rio by um, Duran Duran. Oh. Our two, like, covers. Those were, so that those were the defining, that's. And everything in between. <laughs> and, a, and a couple of meters tunes. Like oh, it was yeah. just all over the place. Yeah. But it got you up there doing that. And there were like, I was in bars before I was of age and there were girls dancing. Yeah. And I was, I was pretty, pretty uh, sold on that lifestyle. There you go. The violin pays off. So from there, so you grew up in Chicago the whole time, right? Yeah. Northwestern. So... What was the primary focus of the study with the music? I mean, you play, what do you play? Guitar, violin, other things? Um, mostly those two. Um, I write songs more on guitar these days. Um, just there's a reason why that's a go-to for songwriters. Um, it's not pressed up against my vocal cords. Um, right. And I love, I love guitars. I find them sexier than violins. Yeah. Um, I think that's and, established. I think that's a... Yeah, I think it is. <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to yeah. turn that around. It's not going to... And it's, I'm pretty ham-fisted on guitar. I, I just taught myself how to play. I can't, I can't even play bar chords. I just, I just kind of feel my way around on it. And uh, that's mostly it. When you were studying, was it like, was the focus, like at Northwestern, what, was it mostly classical? I mean, when you broke out into the jazz or the, what was it, what was it, what did you call it? Hot jazz, hot club, hot what? Hot jazz, uh, which is kind of pre-war jazz. Uh, that kind of like fast shuffle stuff? Pre- yeah, like... Um, like Django? From Django, but also I've got, a, you know, Fats Waller, Louis Armstrong. Oh, okay. The pre, pre-bebop yeah. stuff. Right. Lester Young is my all-time favorite. Um, and that's still a go-to Sax. for me. He's great. Yeah. I was studying violin performance, so yeah, it was classical. But I, I would take, you know an ethnomusicology class where I had to transcribe John Coltrane solos. Oh, so you can the do that. the ethnomusicology guy was studying jazz, so that was his area of expertise. Yeah. And, uh, and then I had to play the John Coltrane blue train, and that kind of expanded my ears. All these things 
and the Irish music, they all like made my ears grow, you know, beyond where they would have with classical music. But you never dug into the uh, country fiddle early on? Um, I did a little bit. I actually got, it's, you know, I got into the country thing or the folk, American folk thing through, to tell you the truth, through the Ken Burns Civil War soundtrack. Oh, yeah. Like Jay Unger and that Ashokan Farewell tune. Right. Was like, I played so many weddings and funerals and with that tune. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 it's what paid my rent for the first couple of years. Of really? So that was like a gateway drug into the, uh, the, <laughs> the darkness of Appalachia, huh? Yeah, in a way. Uh, that was a modern composition, but it was, it was just kind of a beautiful kind of Anglo-Irish yeah. Appalachian tune. And then I got into, uh, through playing with Jimbo Mathis and the Skullnut Zippers, I, Jimbo is uh, a big Charlie Patton. Um, Bow Weevil Blues. Yeah, he's, he's like, he can do that stuff. He can do that, those weird ways that Charlie Patton would sort of vamp and turn the beat around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that, that no one really does right. that I've heard. It's um, hard to isolate it when you listen to the records because the records are so, you know, kind of swamp. They're kind of like damaged. It's hard to. It's all you can really hear is that weird rhythm. I know, and uh, he's he's he knows all those little inflections that no one does in blues or anything anymore. And he he kind of rides. I just made a record with Jimbo that's coming out next year, which I'll send to you, um, called These Thirteen. But it's it's just a duo record. Kind of I wanted to do like a Mississippi Sheiks. Kind yeah, of yeah, Charlie yeah. Charlie Patton thing with with him, and it kind of goes from uh, from country blues to uh, churchy early country music, huh? You know, and we wrote a bun- bunch of these songs together. Um, that sounds great. That, that yeah, that that was fun to kind of go back and finish that thought because I really got into in my early twenties. That because uh, I was living in Chicago in uptown Edgewater neighborhood and near the Green Mill and uh, this jazz club and I was really immersed in it that during those in my twenties listening to this radio show called Blues Before Sunrise. Right, you listening to all the like the the old seventy eight style stuff. He would play seventy eights from midnight till four in the morning of like you know Dixie Hummingbirds and. And just all this really obscure Southern music, and I would tape it. I'd stay up as late as I could, and I would tape them, and fall asleep, and turn the tape over, and keep taping it. And, it's so uh, it's so wild to me that like you know because like I listen to like there's definitely a point like I can hear that stuff in the music in the early stuff you did like in the first three or four mm-hmm. records. And I could see that it was its own thing, its own time zone, that there was, you know, it, there was, it, it was a thing. You were doing a thing. And I don't know if there was a community around it, but I knew the style of music you were playing. But it was almost felt like, you know, like that period in America where it's like everyone decided it was time to swing dance. I was like, yeah. there's, a, there's a point where, like, the music is great, but I started wondering, and I imagine you did as well, how far am I going to go with this? Oh my God! So I was sitting there watching, <laughs> sitting at a at a bar with you know, uh, 
where they're having swing dance lessons. And oh, no, People yeah. are smoking cigars and drinking martinis. Right. And it's like, oh, the music is just, just another accessory to a lifestyle trend. Like a novelty. Yeah. And I, th- I thought I was in it because I, I thought I was fascinated by the music and I was kind of enchanted by the era. Yeah. Um, and, but I did start to see that, that it was a dead end. First of all, like, why listen to me play it when you can listen to Grappelli, honestly? Well, but, but, um, but, like, but, yeah. but like, I don't know that many people are going to make that jump, but just as a young and sort of creative person, to be lumped into a trend becomes yeah. sort of problematic, you know, because then it's like a goddamn costume party. And nobody's exactly. necessarily appreciating the music other than the novelty of like time travel. Exactly. Yeah. And we would, we would show up to gigs, you know, with Bowl of Fire and they would say the promoter was trying to make, get people in the door. So he'd put out like a sign that says swing dance lessons uh. to Andrew Bird's Bowl of Fire. And uh, the, uh, my tunes had so many twists and turns and stops and starts and tempo changes and everything. People would just stop their Ugh. lessons and they'd be like look at us like what are you doing what's yeah. happening like yeah, yeah yeah you're like we're doing the thing that we came here to do you fucking weirdos <laughs> but i was still i was in my early 20s and i i was still in a student i was still a student you know? sure i understood that i mean i understood that by listening to it but like like what was fascinating to me and listening to like whatever shift you made it's it's fairly dramatic like from after you know from swimming hour to weather systems and beyond, you know, you like you reconfigure your entire approach. I kind of look at it like I was started off in New Orleans um, with the first couple records, literally. Yeah. And, and also as far as the locus of the music and kind of went up through Memphis or Detroit to Chicago uh-huh. and uh, with with Swimming Hour and... By the time you get to the end of swimming hour, I'm kind of on the cusp of, I'm like playing with, you know, more modern pop, whatever things. But that's right. So like swimming hour, right. So swimming hour is sort of like, it's a little all over the place yeah. stylistically. Like, yeah, there's a rock tune on there. There's an old timey tune. There's a blue tune. Like, right. For sure. And, and then, uh, I got a little tired. I thought, I thought I've got more to say than hey isn't this old music cool um right and i felt that i'm gonna write some original i mean i was writing original lyrics there's not much between the some of the old songs when i I got a little better at writing lyrics over the years but um still I, i felt like if i'm got your attention and i'm singing words i might let's talk about something interesting instead of like you know typical old-timey stuff but i started stripping away all the things i saw is like stylistic cinematic references uh-huh and i thought i even challenged myself like how how few chords can i get away with putting in this song how few little inflections because i i got i kind of put the band aside playing with other people for a while i moved out into the country into a barn and so I had to really physically isolate myself to get away from other musicians record collections and my own and I you know 
spent weeks and weeks without talking to anybody. It was a little extreme. Uh-huh. I don't know if I needed to go that far, but um, and I didn't bring any records with me. I was just living in this barn, uh, looping my violin all day long. Um, and <laughs> it's worth. Was anybody concerned? Uh, you know, I thought my friends were going to come visit me, but I forgot to real. You know, I forgot to remember that uh, they didn't have cars. Oh, any of my friends. So, so you're just stranded three, out there with your looper. I was three hours away from Chicago uh, on a farm. My parents lived like six miles down the road, and uh, and I just would get up and make coffee and and play till the sun went down and that's where you found it yeah i was i was really looking for something i was i was um little things from my collective experience would bubble up in the song you know in the songs but otherwise Uh i was um trying to strip away all the distractions and that's and so you and you arrived at the base of your voice yeah i i uh I can hear that. And that's when people started calling what I do indie rock. And that was confusing to me. I saw someone describe it as Baroque pop. Uh, <laughs> I can see why you'd, I can see why you might, might get that from some tunes uh-huh. you know, where there's a slightly, uh, you know, orchestrated nature to it, but it's a lot. I, th- I think of it as a lot rougher than that, especially live. Sure. Well, what do you, what do you call it? God, if you could think of something and and tell me, you'd save me a lot of trouble. Oh, um, so you got nothing. People's eyes glaze over when I try to. Well, I mean, it. but the, but it's sort of like it's like there's bands like there there's something like as you it seems that as you evolved like I think it's interesting that you had stripped it all the way down because you know what you kind of end up with when you build up from that is you know I think a way of organizing like there's some th- elements of what you do later on that re- reminds me a little of uh, Philip Glass even, mm-hmm. you know, and, and how, you know, the the beat and the rhythm is organized. You know, it's certainly mm-hmm. that kind of world of like, you know, some, you know, the the American music of, of David Byrne as well, you know, post-Talking mm-hmm. Heads, before Brazilian stuff. Like, I, I mean, yeah. I don't know what you would call that either. So I, I don't, I think you're in good company. Yeah, I got, you know, with the looping kind of... Um pushed it in that minimalist uh direction and then the the pizzicato i would find these three against two sort of um polyrhythmic patterns Mm. just from improvising and uh that was the the cool thing is that once you get rid of the band for a minute and the bass drums and guitar all kind of creating something together and you just it's just me like creating my own bass lines that don't make any sense according to uh, what's been done before, right? Uh, but it makes sense to to me at the moment. Um, that's I think that might be where you're getting like the the Steve Reich and the or Philip Glass and the yeah West West African Cora music is another big yeah. influence. I love music that doesn't conform to the eight bar phrase. Right, that'll turn the turn the beat around like Charlie Patton. It just doesn't care or ne- never, you know. Um, was indoctrinated fully into the whole, uh, basically the eight bar phrase, which is right. You know, There's no turnaround. Yeah, exactly. right. You can just John Lee Hooker it. Just stay on the one thing until you 
Oh, you know, just stay on the E until you feel an A, and don't feel pressured to stay in the A for very long if you don't uh, want. To. I know, man. I love that stuff. That's what that's what Jimbo does so well. That that uh, that even the twelve people, the twelve bar blues is like yeah. why why is that such a thing? It's like the the really cool stuff doesn't doesn't conform to anything you'd call a twelve bar blues. Sometimes no, it's just like a hymn, but it just yeah, like you said, it doesn't doesn't go to the four chord. It doesn't. Oh, it's all, it's all from that gospel stuff. I talked to that. I was talking to Bootsy Collins the other day. It's just like, mm-hmm. you can just stay on the one chord. Stay, you can stay there all day long if you want. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but it seems like you kind of landed on some, something that's uniquely yours, which is no easy trick, you know? Yeah. It, uh, it did take some extreme measures to get there. Sounds um, like it, but it didn't. Seem, it doesn't sound like you had to, you know, destroy yourself. They weren't Dionysian, unless you're not telling me something. They were more sort of isolating and repetitive and kind of immersion. But you did. You didn't have to go out and get all fucked up, did you? <laughs> no, <laughs> no. But but you know, extreme states of mind do tend to get you somewhere. Yeah. Whether it's extreme fatigue or emotional stress even yeah uh or just what i did was a deprivation chamber for for a couple years Mm. um and yeah but you know lately it's just kind of i i did have something to prove after i came out of that phase of like to get away from all that uh association of the that swing whatever lifestyle it took a couple of years to like wash my hands of that so which album do you think you it was the first you record the uh, mysterious production of eggs uh no the swimming hour i mean uh not the swimming hour the uh, weather systems weather well, that was like but that's where you feel really feel like like this is what i've been doing this is what i this is what i yielded from my from my submersion exactly mm. um that was be- just before Miss. I tried to make mysterious production of eggs out at the farm, but I hadn't, you know, I hadn't shed the the city yet. Right. And and I tried to make it, and it it was a disaster, and I scrapped the whole thing, and I went and made weather systems instead, and no one understood what I was doing. My the guy engineer I was working with was like, "This doesn't seem like you or something." He was just confused. Hmm. And uh, I, I stuck with it, and then, and I had to do that mostly by myself. Were um, you? Th- did you think you were losing your mind? I did when I I couldn't make mysterious production of eggs uh, successfully. It took me three tries to get that album. What? what so what? Now, like only you know what's going to make that right, and you were made, and you made another record. So what was it that was hanging you up? What? Do you did, could you see the obstacle, or or were you concerned that like maybe I'm making this obstacle up and my brain is like falling into itself? You know, weather systems was this more ambient thing where I was just exploring um, textures and right. patterns and stuff, and it really had no pressure to it. Like I, there was no expectation. I put right. it out. I didn't even put it out on a label. I just kind of self released it. And mysterious production was way more ambitious. It's all about childhood and it's almost a concept record and uh okay so you had an it's arc. about like yeah i had like a real something i was trying to impart but i didn't know didn't have the skills yet to do it so i 
you know you, i get it yeah and it never works so you, like you make i made weather systems i think oh uh trying to make it like uh with the band like the like my old city life didn't right. work and right. then i said oh, i'll try to make it like weather systems and that didn't work and then i finally went to la to uh work with this engineer david boucher and then that finally worked just need the right collaboration and a little time yeah yeah and a little bit of like coming out to la it was I was like, oh, this is, this is, I guess people come out here to get paid because they're good at their jobs and they work like uh, <laughs> yeah. from 10 to 6 or norm, somewhat normal hours. And they, you have to pay them a lot, more than I'm used to paying in but they're Chicago. Good. But they're good. You get, you get way more shit done. No and kidding. I was like, okay, I get it. I yeah. get it. Why, why people come out here. But I was very suspicious of <laughs> LA, really? Otherwise, why well, you thought it was all polished idiots who didn't understand art? <laughs> uh, no, I thought there was wasn't enough suffering here. Um, I was hung hung up on the idea that 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 I was still this is a long time. I thought that suffering was uh, essential to uh, adversity, like Chicago. You know, it's like we we do the we make art to get through the winter and to, from keep from going insane or just fighting off right. seasonal depression, right? And you see see what you come out with in in, in the spring, right? And, when the flowers uh, come, you see what your yeah. flowers look like. <laughs> <laughs> and I came out to LA. I was like, these plants aren't indigenous, you know? What's, <laughs> yeah, what's oh, going on? yeah, no one's indigenous here. What's right. everybody exactly. wearing shorts for? Yeah, I get yeah. it. <laughs> There's plenty of suffering out here. I think you probably learned. No, I, <laughs> it's sometimes you have to manufacture it. But, yeah. Yeah. It's a whole all different it's a whole different type of suffering. It's not seasonal. It's just like the sunshine around here. The suffering is year round out here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but then okay, but so then you kind of on then so you take a, as the as the albums progress, do you still I mean outside of the Christmas record or whatever else you're doing, do you still see them all as cuz like you know you said something earlier about you know you you kind of take into mind the music and the lyrics and the artwork uh, like all of that do you still approach all records like that as singular pieces in and of themselves outside of the songs necessarily yes i now it's just like in this um cycle of there's the the songs that just accumulate over the course of like two years and mm -hmm. all the stuff that i'm i'm concerned about during that time and they just i just wait for them to come i don't force anything usually how does it happen what comes first the melody the yeah the melody almost huh. always comes first really uh if the lyrics come first uh, it's a different kind of tune really um why because you gotta you got yeah. why is that well um okay so i got the usual way it happens is it's a melody and yeah. i think this melody is so good it keeps coming back without having to record it or remind myself. It just mm. keeps coming back. And so I know I've got to do something with this. And I know in order to do the melody justice, the human voice is what needs to carry it. So now I need words. Mm. And then you're just kind of running the numbers. This is uh, what I do when I have ins insomnia at night. Like I'm, I'm just crack, trying to crack the code of the melody, the shape of the melody with words. Mm. And I just sort of point point the melody at a subject that I'm thinking about. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And I just kind of aim it at it and like 
see if they can eventually huh. fit and try not to let the words compromise the melody too much. Like I'm, in, I'm right in the thick of that as we speak. Um, mm. And because uh, I, I, I take the words out and the melody sings and then I put the words in and it kind of cramps the melody style a little bit. Drags it down. And, uh, words yeah, are dragging your it, melody down. But I love, I love word. I mean, I love words too. And sometimes there's, I can have a motif, uh, some kind of uh, thing that's uh, something gets under my skin, a melody. Yeah. And sometimes a word gets under my skin or a phrase. Right. Yeah. I'm working on this song right now about uh, molt, like human molting. You know, mm. like how animals molt. They mm-hmm. shed their skin or their feathers or their fur. Like I feel like every season I kind of emotionally, physically molt in a way. Yeah. Like, uh, like I go into this hi- hibernating, weird, like low-grade fever. Mm. And it happens with such regularity that I'm like starting to think like maybe I'm molting, you know. So, but I mean, when you molt, do do you do you uh, emerge a chrysalis or just you again? Yeah, I mean, it's really unpleasant. (laughs) It's it's really unpleasant for two weeks, and then I come out like a newborn foal. Huh? You know, I'm full of energy and clarity, but I have to go through this this very unpleasant, really physical, physiological um, experience. But you don't, you know, you've never pathologized it you've never thought you were ill in some way no i mean everyone around me thinks i'm depressed but i'm I'm like i swear to god i've got some I'm, it's still i'm just molting do you tell them that i'm just molt. Uh, yeah <laughs> i that's what i tell my wife and she just rolls her eyes <laughs> here we um, go with the molting again <laughs> <laughs> so anyway i'm i'm you know i'm writing a song where i've got a, a melody yeah and i remember uh, I don't know where I heard this, but it was like, I think it was like a New Yorker comic or something where there's a baby in a, in a crib in, in an ICU or whatever, yeah. not ICU, but you know, the prenatal yeah. thing and, and maternity ward and the, the baby says, OMG, I just got born. <laughs> and I, I like that. <laughs> I just got born. I was like, okay, that, let me work that in there somehow. Uh huh. Like, Cause that's a little more uh, compared to like saying molting and sheathing and, and uh, exoskeleton, like right. trying to work that into a song. I just got born is funny too. It's got a little jokey. To yeah. It. Yeah. So anyway, so that, that's like a, a pretty early phases of that. That song won't be ready for another two years, but um, wow. So, but and you just accept that this is going to be in the, this is going to be in the uh, hopper for two years. Yeah. And they're like, you know, I can only maintain, because I, like I said, I work on these when I can't sleep. So I pull out a file in my head or when I'm waiting for a plane or whatever, some idle time, you pull out this file and you like hammer at it. Yeah. And I I have a pretty good playback system in my head so I can demo things in my head. That's good. Working on. Yeah. And these songs become like my companions for. Interesting for that period of time, for that two or three years until I get it down. And then what, and how is it, so how is it different when you start with words? They tend to be, uh, more rhythmic. Mm. Um, 
Oh, because the, that's, the melody's not first, so you can you have a little more freedom, a little more leeway with yourself. Yeah. Right. Like, for, like Sisyphus, you know, Sisyphus peered into the mist, a stone's throw from the precipice paused. Right. Like, that was not melody-driven. Exactly, or right. Or was like, um, and they tend to be a little more, you know, they're not too far, though maybe culturally far away from, but they're not too far away from the process of, of a rapper, honestly. Right, 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 right. You know? Sure. Uh, I think you're just you're you're looking for good rhythm and rhyme. And you don't know they just come like the melodies, just sort of out of, out of nowhere. You, a few things come together. Yeah, a few things come together. Uh, I kind of just recede into myself and get that thousand yard stare, and I'm kind of in in here, just sort of um, running numbers, running right. codes, yeah, yeah, yeah. running doing crosswords it's it's sometimes it's not as it's creative but it's not you know what i mean it's like it, well yeah right right it's it's why well, I, I imagine that if you're a melody guy that's a little more enchanting in some way where words are kind of like yeah you just they're like math problems exactly and, and melodies i just i simply cannot tell you where they're coming from right and um, that's and that's the amazing thing like i like that even when i'm improvising uh you know comedy where the ideas are the, that moment where you your brain needs to get the laugh but you don't know how it's going to come and something comes out of you and you're like wow that was exciting where did that come from yeah i don't know i know i feel an affinity with with comedians honestly the i feel like when i get up on stage i want to sh- i shrug my shoulders <laughs> like right. i don't know folks <laughs> this is just what's yeah. let's see what happens yeah exactly uh yeah and i i like well i i'm impressed by comedians you know a profession where you you're living by your wits i think that's that's um that seems noble to me yeah me too you know yeah and and it's and it's uh it's very it's scary it is like yeah like Getting ready to do this interview, I realize like I I get I get to play a song. Yeah, that's my security blanket. But otherwise, I'm being judged on my personality right now. Yeah, I think you're doing that, very well. That's scary. I I, I think. Oh. You... <laughs> no, I'm serious. No, I'm serious. Like it's weird. I mean, you're being judged on personality. I didn't know you though, you know, and I had thought certain things. But but it is different, you know. When you have, I've always thought that musical music is much is magic in a way. Where like if you're just doing jokes. I mean, you can do them a few times, but they're going to wear out. Whereas, like, you got music. Not only can you hide behind it or whatever you think you're doing, or or, or it gives you an assist, but, you know, a, a song can can stay with somebody forever and, and actually change as time goes on. Whereas a joke, but it's just like you did it, though. It's interesting that, that I didn't really think about it like that because you remembered that joke. Like, sometimes a joke is exactly what you need, and sometimes they're old jokes, and sometimes they're good points of reference. But they're not the same as the song, you know. Yeah, but I mean, whether whether they're they you've done them a million times to the audience, you're you're living by the seat of your pants, like you're. Yeah, I try never to edge. do a joke a million times. God forbid. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, it would be that'd be like a nightmare. That's like the worst dream ever. You'd be stuck in a joke. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, you just feel like I, I feel like when I'm playing night after night yeah. shows, and I and I say the same a similar banter to what I did the night before. Sure. I feel like such a Fraud. <laughs> Imagine doing it for a living, dude. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so what, how do you choose this, like, you know, on the new record, on the Hark record? I mean, some of them are your songs, some of them are songs you like, correct? 
Yeah, I, I just, you know, uh, they were all at ar- arm's reach. They were all, uh, sometimes with an album, you just put a bunch of stuff in a room yeah. and see if they get along. I, I started off just being, thinking I'm going to do a Vince Guaraldi cover album, put, mm. put together a great bunch of jazz musicians and just play Vince Guaraldi tunes. Yeah. And then I get, got a little greedy and I wanted to write some originals. And you see, that, you see them as holiday music? Oh, the ones that I wrote? Yeah, I thought, uh, well, that's kind of what gets a songwriter up in the morning is thinking, oh, to this morning I could write the song that gets everybody singing the oh, same yeah. tune. You know, like, and what better place to do that than... Uh, than right. Like, what if you could get a song into the holiday canon? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Not only yeah. would you be set. Right. But, so I thought, you know, try to reinvigorate the, the tired canon of holiday music with, You're- you know some choice covers that I think deserve entry. Yeah. Um, you know, it, I set the bar pretty low. You just have to either mention Christmas or snow or something. Uh-huh. Uh, and that's good. As long as it's a good piece of music, then let's do it. Um, but when I wrote the originals, uh, like Alabaster, I tried to write some, the first couple of originals I tried to write were too dark. You know, you ask yourself when you're writing something, it's like, <laughs> the does dark, the world... <laughs> the dark Christmas songs? Yeah, does, does the world really need this? Is this what people... Because it's a, it's a utilitarian thing, like Christmas music. It's, it's like, you put it on to create an atmosphere. It's not, not being... Uh, I noticed that. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. When I was listening to it, I thought, like, all right, so this is, like, you know, the, the fire's going, family's around, yeah. right? You did it, but you did that. A, uh, you did that great John Prine song. Isn't that a John Prine song on there? It is. Yeah, oh. souvenirs. Yeah, which I've been, I've been covering that for years. I didn't really think, it, you know. But then it's like, oh, he's talking about like the post Christmas, you know, crash, um, and it's such an evocative tune. I thought that's this a little was, bitter, a little dark, a little dark, a little dark. Yeah. It's talking about memories and nostalgia and and uh, and feeling kind of betrayed by your memories, I guess. And um, green wine. That's is that is that an old melody? Is that is that that's green sleeves? Green sleeves, green right? Sleeves. Okay, there you go. Yeah. So I, I've always loved that melody, um, and I mashed that up with a handsome family tune about uh, you know mental illness and alcoholism and and Christmas. Yeah, the uh, the handsome family uh, uh, subgenre. Alcohol, mental yeah. illness. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. I like them. Uh, I like them. They live in my hometown. I've, I've interviewed them. Oh, you're from uh, Albuquerque? Yeah. Nice. I grew up there. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So the, in the movie, you say you're from New Mexico. That's, that's, that's for real. Okay. It's for real, man. <laughs> I grounded that improvisation in my own life. Yeah. And then the whole Lower East Side... Well, yeah, well, no, the Lower East Side, I lived there for a long time, but, like, my parents are from Jersey, but I grew up in New Mexico. That's where my dad settled in the early 70s, so that's where, that's what I consider home. Okay. So, which one of these original uh, Christmas standards are we, are you going to play? Um, I, I was, first I was thinking green wine, and then I thought maybe Christmas in April. Christmas but in April. it's up to you. I can do either one. Is that a, what is that, um, a, a ukulele? It's a violin. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I'll do, I'll do, since we talked about green wine, let's do green wine. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. 
I had nothing to say on Christmas Day when you threw all your clothes in the snow. When you burnt your hair and knocked over chairs, I just tried to stay out of your way. But when you fell asleep with blood on your teeth, I just got in my car and drove away. Listen to me, butterfly. There's only so much wine You can't drink in one life But it will never be enough To save you from the bottom of your glass I love it, man. Thank you. Sounds great. That's such a moving uh, melody, and the words are great. That's a that's a that's a nice dark Christmas song. It is quite dark. Um, <laughs> yeah. I love the. You know, I think uh, part of uh, my, some of my favorite Christmas tunes are minor key. Yeah. Um, tunes, and I think you know, part of the holiday is because. It's somewhat arbitrary. The birth of Christ, I think, actually happened in uh, 
in May or something like that. You know, yeah, I, exactly I have no idea is, what to, it's what a pagan real. holiday about yeah. like, you know, doing something f- festive to get through like a dark time. And sometimes it's like embracing the darkness is, is helpful, you know? Yeah. That seems to be the theme of our conversation. The, uh, uh molting seasonal darkness coming right. out uh, after the darkness, you know, <laughs> struggling yeah. with the darkness. Yeah. Well, I look, I, I, I agree with you. I mean, I, uh, it's a very weird thing when I ask you about, you know, like that isolation and stuff. Like, I, I know that most of my personality is built around knowing that, you know, it only takes me a couple of steps and I'm in a pretty deep hole, you know? <laughs> it did. Yeah. And like, uh, and you, you just kind of, you, you kind of make your way around that. And, and, and the more you, you create out of that place, the, the more relief you get and the more resources you get to not live in that hole, you know? Yeah. But I think the, the suffering for your art is a myth. At no, the same time. you can't like, do it on purpose. That's why it's, a, I don't know no. if it, whether it's a myth or what, but the romanticization of it is, you know, yeah, there's plenty of fucked up artists around that have their own struggles. And, I, and arguably anybody who does original art and commits to that life is a certain special type of person that's willing to engage in a life of struggle. But I don't think you can uh, you can uh, do it on purpose. No. No. I've found other ways to channel that that impulse, though. Just um, I, to, to kind of blunt my myself against the world. Yeah. But it's not not that's not say my art. If I if I wake up and I'm happy and energetic, I I do better work, you know. Sure. Yeah, because um, you're excited. You're not you're not you're not trying yeah. to climb out of a pit. Exactly. Do you do do you exercise? Do you mountain mountain biking or something? How did you know? Yeah, I I like <laughs> riding. I like riding, and I've been doing this more since the the pandemic. Yeah. Is my way to cope with it is to do like extreme. Almost, you know, exercising to the point of almost nausea. Yeah, good. You know, and it, I think it makes me, <laughs> yeah. it makes me dumb enough. Yeah, oh. to be able to handle the day uh, and handle right. the, the world. Right, because you're that's you're, my theory. Because you're fucking exhausted. Yeah, you're just kind. Of, you're just. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I do that too. Where you're like at two o'clock, you're like, why am I need a nap? Oh yeah. Yeah. I rode up a mountain. And it's also to get the, endor- the endorphin hit that I used to get from performing, too. I think it's... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been, I've been doing these live Instagrams in the morning to engage with a live bunch of people. And the, it, mm-hmm. it's a double-edged sword, but it does give me the little jolt of being engaged that way, you know? Yeah. It doesn't take too much to feel like you're just on the hot seat a little bit. Um, yeah. To get, that, to get that fix. And also talking to, to people is good, you know? Talking to you, I can do sure. it. For sure. Well, it was good talking to you, man. It was great talking to you. I, I really, when you wrote, wrote that note about Lynn, I wanted, it sound, may sound disingenuous at this point, but I wanted to reach out. Yeah. And like, I was thinking maybe, but then I was like, you don't know me from Adam. Like, yeah. if I call, if I like wrote to you and said, hey, let's go, let's go for a walk or something. Yeah, we uh, could have. But th- I had that impulse. Well, thanks, man. I, I have to, and I, I didn't act on it. That's okay. Um, I, you know, it was like, it's just so, it's, it's, you know, it's a really, it's been a really difficult thing, you know? Yeah. I don't know. I don't even know how. It's just so, yeah. it's so, like, it's so normal, but so, 
like it's it's not normal in that it's tragic, but it it's what happens in life, you know. But it's like uh, it's really hard to uh, to wrap your brain around it, you, you know, into the absence and whatnot. Like there's no way to kind of make it. There's no way to normalize it, you know. But it, it's like yeah. it's as normal as being born in some ways. You don't know how it's going to go down, but but Jesus, man, it's rough yeah. go. Because she was a special person. She's an uncommon, uncommon person. I noticed that the moment I met her. So, yep. Um, yeah. But uh, thanks for talking, and yeah, and uh, I really enjoyed getting into your stuff more, preparing for this. And I like the the new uh, holiday record. And it was uh, thanks, man. It was good getting to know you a little bit, man. Yeah, same here. I'll be in touch right. someday. Yeah. When we get out of the Please. plague, we'll hang out. I'll play some. Me. I'll play some one chord blues with you. I love that. Yeah. Okay, man. Take it easy, Andrew. See you, Mark. All right. Sang a song for us. The song he played was "Green Wine" from his new album Hark. You can get that at andrewbird.net. Also, go to wtfpod.com/slash/merch. Got the two clothes shirts. Got all the other stuff. Might be able to squeeze in a quick uh, Christmas gift purchase. It'll probably get there late, but you can still do it. I'm bad with gifts. I'm, I'm good at getting them. Alright, I'll play a little guitar. Fonda, cat angels everywhere. <laughs>